0: How's it going? Welcome back to the Manufacturing Come Up. Today, we have a special guest. Mike, why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Hey, Malachi, this is, a uh, yeah, I'm Mike Unger. I'm um, currently a focal point business coach and executive coach, and we focus on helping um, business owners and business leaders uh, improve their profitability and achieve their personal and professional goals. I've been doing this now for, about two and a half years um, prior to taking to to, to uh, pursuing this profession, I worked for Michelin North America for thirty-five years. During my time at Michelin, most of my time was spent in manufacturing. Um, uh, my background is in continuous improvement. Uh, I've led operational teams, a little bit of finance, managed some capital investments, and and later in my career, spent a good bit of time in HR in human resources, in both recruiting and competency management. So um, and then prior to that, I was in the army for a few years as well. So.
0: Oh, nice, nice. And tell tell everybody about the about you guys as a group. Industry 4.0.
1: Yeah. So thank you for that. So when I became a coach, I got heavily involved in the industry 4.0 club. So I'm a co-founder of the industry 4.0 club and I work with uh, a a group of volunteers and our focus is on advancing the deployment of industry 4.0 You know, unfortunately today there are many mid-sized and small manufacturers who haven't gotten started. And quite honestly, um, we think that's a shame. There's a lot of opportunity out there. Certainly you don't want to do technology for technology's sake, but when you've got challenges and problems to solve, the cost of technology has come down dramatically and there's some wonderful opportunities out there to use these tools to help you advance and become more competitive. So our group our club we we host conversations around industry 4.0 we provide education on the topic and bring together really a, a diverse group of people to to share and connect uh, to advance the deployment of industry
0: 4.0 where can people find that that channel at
1: so we we're we're active on uh, on linkedin probably the best place you can mm-hmm. go to the industry 4.0 club uh, we also have a, a website at www.industry4oclub.com, and where you can find us on YouTube as well and Twitter.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I notice like one thing with like like podcasts and like different uh, shows like like ours. It's sometimes it can be difficult to, to like search and find whenever you're actually trying to search it up.
1: Yeah. No, I I would say the easiest way to find it would be to look at our our LinkedIn page, mm-hmm. and they're probably also fairly well organized on YouTube as well. If you look for uh, Industry 4.0 Club.
0: Yeah. I always find YouTube is the easiest place to search, search things. Yeah. Uh, me,
1: me too. I've seen that as well.
0: <laughs> awesome. Mike, let's go ahead and take a dive back into your career. And uh, I want to know how you got started into manufacturing. But before we go there, what drove you into going to the military first?
1: So it's a great question. Uh, and it's funny, you're going to, This you may laugh about this. You know, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in high school. And I went to the guidance counselor when I was uh, early in my junior year in high school and said, I'm, I'm not sure what I want to do. And the the counselor suggested I take a, an interest survey that compared your likes and dislikes to those of different professions. So I did the interest survey and the number one, my, my most pop, my the thing that matched closely with my interests and in, in likes were that of, of a military officer, an army officer as a fact. So my likes and dislikes matched best with that profession and so that got me interested in uh in the military and at that time i applied to the military academy at west point and was accepted and uh so you know one thing led to another and the next thing i knew i was uh in the army so
0: nice nice and how long did you end up spending in the army
1: i spent when we graduated from west point we spent almost we're supposed to spend five years i spent just about five years as an officer in the military you know, um, like a lot of things, I learned that probably it wasn't the my going to be where my strengths lie. Unfortunately, uh, you know, West Point's a great training ground. You learn a lot about leadership and about yourself. And one thing I learned about myself in the military was that I, I don't do well without sleep. So nice. uh, it was a, a tremendous experience, something I would recommend for anybody, honestly. Our profession is the military profession's wonderful. Um, and it's a great way to to go and learn if it's something you're interested in. Um, so, uh, five years, I spent most of my time in Germany. It's quite interesting. I was there in Germany before the Berlin wall came down. And so the, the Mm -hmm. current war in Ukraine is really a deja vu a little bit about, Hey, we've been here before. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and it's a little scary, but, um, you know, we know what to do and we know how to help there in Europe if it's needed. So.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Do you feel like any of those skills that they translated uh into your career?
1: Absolutely. You know, as a as an officer, one of the things about the army and really the military in general that's really a positive or a real strength is is that there's a lot of standards, right? A lot of standards of performance. And learning how to how to achieve those standards and maintain those standards is really key for success in the military. And that that's the same thing you find in manufacturing, in fact you know respect for standards is one of the real um important cultural things that that really any manufacturer should be pursuing in order to have really i call yeah. an excellent operation yeah and so learning about that learning the importance of that in the military translated quite well into uh into a career in manufacturing
0: gotcha yeah i, I agree the standards is huge um it's kind of mind blowing. Like some companies you go into, into their facility and you look at a piece of equipment and they don't have electrical drawings. They don't have, you know, comments in their PLC code. And it's like, how do you guys survive and keep your machinery alive?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, ultimately the standards help you, you know, if you don't have a standard, the other thing we learned in continuous improvement and it's a basic, but you can't improve chaos. So unless you have a standard, you can't even improve that standard, right? And improve yeah. the operation. So it's really a fundamental one to have the standard, and to then create a culture that people respect the standard. And yeah. it's a challenge in our society alone here, and in uh, in the U.S. in particular, in Canada. Um, we tend to we tend to kind of like you know, hey, you're not going to tell me what to do, sort of perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And so culturally, it's it's it can be challenging, but I think to go with that, and this is something that maybe the army didn't do as well, all the time. But but a good leaders did is you get you got to provide the why. Why is this standard important? And because uh, if if an individual has to has to be able to internalize that standard, right? They've got to be able to understand. You're asking me to do it a certain way. Well, why? What's the benefit? And that's mm-hmm. especially true, you know, when my work at when I work at Michelin, we ran 24/7, and okay. so and we had limited supervision on the back shifts. And so how do I feel confident that the individual is going to follow the standard at 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning? It's because they understand the why they've internalized the standard and they're willing to follow it. They're willing to be disciplined enough to follow that standard because it matters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the standard has to be a cultural thing within the business. Absolutely. That's one, that's one thing like, like, you know, right now we're like growing as a company and, and becoming more of a corporation and, there's sometimes people come to me and ask me a question and I basically say, go look at the procedure, you know, how are we supposed to do this? And I kind of hate answering it in that way. And it, it's, you know, but it's like, it kind of forces people to keep going back to those, those procedures and to, to follow what the actual process is every single time.
1: Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. It's funny. You, you say that. Um, early in my career, I had a, had a manager, plant manager, and I would walk in and ask him questions, right? And one day he said, Mike, stop. Okay, let me let me make it clear. I ask the questions, you give the answers. And what he really was saying to me with that response was my role as your, as the plant manager is to develop the team and to develop in you the competence to deal with the challenges you face. Mm-hmm. And so you shouldn't be asking me for the answers. I should be asking you so that you can develop those those skills, develop those responses for yourself. And that's really how you develop an empowered workforce you, you know if you're as the manager always answering the question you're you're not going to get an empowered workforce
0: yeah yeah exactly and and they'll it'll start to create the opposite culture of what you want of now people will just keep asking you more and more and more and relying on you well uh,
1: yeah and they don't act until you get an an, they get an answer from you when in fact what you want them to do is to to manage their own environment and act uh where where the answers are right. Yeah. Evidence, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're constantly being proactive and digging for, for a solution. Yeah, absolutely. So whenever, whenever you transition from, from the military into a manufacturing position, was it immediately from uh, military to manufacturing?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I took, um, I took a, a few weeks off in between. I exited the military. I was actually serving in Germany at the time. And rather than try to find a job in from Europe, I came home and spent a few weeks doing my job search here in the U.S. And I looked at a couple different alternatives, but what really attracted me to the manufacturing were a couple things. So if you compare again, we talked about standards earlier, but I really enjoyed working in a team environment. Okay. In the military, it's always about the team. And the same thing in manufacturing. It's about the team. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really enjoyed and, and sought um, and a place where I could be part of a team. I enjoyed working in team environment. The other thing I looked for I looked for when I was looking for that first opportunity was, are the values of the company, do they align with my values? Again, the military taught me about certain values, certain things that I thought they held close for myself. And I didn't I wanted to find an organization that had similar um, uh, ethics and morals and values. You know, one of the things from going from West Point, we believe very strongly in in uh, in the honor code, for example. And it, it sounds it may sound a little cliche, but, you know, a cadet will not lie, steal, or cheat, or tolerate those who do. So this idea of being very uh, forthright about those things, I, I wanted an organization. I wanted to work in an organization that had strong values and strong ethics. Mm-hmm. And so those were some of the things I was looking for when I left the military, and I found those at Michelin. And so that's why I joined them, um, in a manu- and in, I didn't know that manufacturing is what I wanted to do, but as I looked for those elements in a job, I might, I might have, I found them in manufacturing.
0: Hmm. Nice. Yeah. I like the, the, the fact that you pointed out, uh, you know, searching for morals and values in the company, uh, that you're going to go work for. I think, especially today, you're, uh, the generation coming into the workforce, they are more focused on cultural work environment more yeah. than ever, you know? And I think yeah, you're gonna absolutely. see a lot of, success. I think you're gonna see a lot of successes and a lot of failures in business due to culture.
1: Yeah. And I, I it's an interesting thing because today now as a business coach, I'm, all, I'm I'm one of the things I'm usually talking to leaders about early in my conversation is what, what, what is your purpose? What's your, why, why are you in business? you know, it, and it has to be something more than to make money. People, do, people, rec, people know businesses make money, right? But yeah. why are you in business? Is it what's your what is the why? And I think that's an important thing. And then, of course, it starts with the, between the why and then have you been explicit about your corporate values? You know, you, you it can't be just intuitive, it's got to be explicit. And then because if it's not explicit, then people don't know how to connect to them. So uh, you're exactly right. Those are things that, that usually when I'm doing business coaching, I'm talking about very early in my conversations with
0: business leaders. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going back to your your uh, entry into the workforce, was there any particular thing that uh, made it so that you landed the position with Michelin or was it a fairly easy interviewing process?
1: Yeah, it was fun. We Michelin at the time, so... I'm going to, you know, I'm going to date myself. We're talking mm-hmm. 1984 now, all right? So some of the laws of the country have changed. So you can't we couldn't do exactly what we did today than we did then. Uh some of the some of the tests that were given, but what there were a couple things that I had we had to do. One of the things I remember very clearly in the interview process is we had a we had to build a cabin. Build a cabin, okay. you may wonder. So it was part of our okay. interview process. Yeah. But but what it was was that we had a, there were a couple of folks that worked for the company. We went uh, we went to a uh, an area, and there was literally, um, uh, the long long poles and and stakes and things, and you had to build a cabin. You had to put a build a cabin with the help of a couple of people, and you were given some instructions. And what it allowed the interview to do was to see how you work with others did you do it yourself did you engage others did you would you were you kind okay and so that was something we had to do and you know it wasn't as much about did you able actually be able actually to build it although that was interesting it was how did you work with the people Mm -hmm. and that was what that was what you were being judged on so that was an interesting part of the interview process um we also had some technical things that we did as well i mean i had to be able to demonstrate uh uh, that I could, uh, understand like, uh, 3d, uh, drawings. And, and even though I was, I would, I wasn't going into a mechanical engineering role, I was going to industrial engineering role. You still had to have some, some understanding of what equipment looked like and how things, you know, some perspective on things. Yeah. And then of course, ultimately there was an interview and, and, uh, a lot of the typical interview
0: questions. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that uh, like team building experience or, or part of that interview is, I could definitely see where that could be super powerful. I'm just imagining like groups of individuals where, you know, you know one person steps up and, and is kind of like the leader of the group. You have, you know, maybe another group of people that's uh, kind of just can't work together. I could just see like a whole ecosystem of, of, of different teams like working and working through this problem.
1: Yeah. Plus we assume that everybody, everybody's able to, um, everybody's kind, you know, you know, so the workers were sort of, uh, they were coached to not overly be overly, to have too much initiative. Um, and so the idea would be that, you know, how did you respond if they weren't doing it right? Were you did you get mad at them or did you, Mm -hmm. were you kind? Did you show them how to do it? Did you demonstrate? And there was how you dealt with people was very clear. It came out very clearly in that exercise
0: yeah so it, with that process were they really looking for the kindness aspect of it
1: well yeah how and how you were able to to communicate and give instruction mm-hmm. and and you know did you observe yeah you know observation is a key part of also of success in a, of uh a, in the manufacturing area mm-hmm. were you able to see what people were doing did you take time to observe and and then help yeah so a yeah, lot a lot cool. of different factors go into that
0: yeah, I can see where like where a company could like take a test. It could be completely different, but like that similar type of idea. And depending on what you want for your own company culture, like really be looking for that metric. Like like, you know, if if your culture is kindness, or maybe your culture is execution. Like maybe you know. Yeah. These-
1: now we now we can't do that today. Unfortunately, we can't do that particular exercise anymore because we did not. You know, you have to make sure that any any test or exercise you give doesn't have any inherent bias. And so we didn't go through that process today of or you know, over the decades of taking it and mm-hmm. getting it validated. Um and it was also rather e- difficult to do. It required extra manpower and that kind of thing. So mm. we've kind of moved past that and use other other ways to, yeah. to ask ask those kind of questions. But gotcha back what, there, that was what we did then. So
0: what what uh what part of that is like kind of the bias and the non like non ethical ethical part of that? Well,
1: it wasn't really wasn't it really wasn't that it wasn't ethical. It was, it's just that in order to pass the U.S. laws today, mm-hmm. there are th- there's a significant amount of extra uh, work to be done to validate a test. Okay, and Got that's it. Just wasn't for the and the second part of it was it was fairly manpower intensive to do the interviews. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. doing a lot of interviews. And so it just we we've kind of evolved past it is more so what i'm saying it wasn't gotcha. that it was a problem per se gotcha. but but it really looked at different ways to do that now
0: okay yeah and i was kind of also just mainly digging into that to kind of make it open up that um the angle of you know somebody's looking to apply for a job some of these higher level positions engineering positions they're going to have rigorous testing right you go yeah. to work for a toyota you're going to go through Day, days of testing.
1: Yeah, I think today, I would say, so one of my roles I had at Michelin over my career was that I was a director of recruiting. Mm-hmm. And so I think today what we really try to do is use behavioral-based questions. And, uh, you know, we ask for folks, give me an example when you work with a team. And how did that go? And, and what did you do when you ran into a problem? And so we get into the details there, listen for the answer, ask more detailed questions, and continue to dig and really validate through the answers that the individual has demonstrated those skills. Recruiting processes aren't perfect. Okay. So, you know, I think we do, we've done historically a pretty good job, but you know, it's not perfect. Some people we, we find, you know, just, we weren't able to see something, but for the most part, you know, we're trying to discover whether right. or not that would work well with the team and how that will, how right. they'll function in our
0: environment. Gotcha. You. And you're, are you kind of speaking like specifically with Michelin?
1: Well, with any company, to be honest with you, it, it, the behavioral based questions is really the best way to go. Honestly, if uh, if you've got a very professional recruiting team, they're going to ask you behavioral based questions to really understand your experiences and your competence in dealing with certain Mm -hmm. situations.
0: Yeah, I guess the thing that's kind of in my mind would be like maybe some manufacturers, like on the smaller scale of things, they may not have like that professional HR team where they're, um, maybe their interviewing process is not as tight. Maybe they're they're maybe they're maybe asking the behavioral questions, right? But maybe they don't know how to analyze them in the proper way as well.
1: Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think that in today's world, though, you go back to you said young today's younger generation. If you're not professional in your hiring process, you probably aren't going to be able to hire.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> folks,
1: you know, because you're an interviewer, interviewee, excuse me, you know, you can see through some of that. And if it's not very professional, it you know I do a little bit of coaching on that today for young young folks, and what I used to say to them is, look, if you if you don't feel like this is a professional interview, probably tells you something about the company. Mm -hmm. And so you know it's important that you look at the interview process as you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. So if you see an issue, or it doesn't feel right to you, it's probably not right. (laughs) And you're even though it, it you may think even if you get a job offer, you know, um, they used to, one of the things I tell folks, there's one thing worse than not having a job. It's having the wrong job. Yeah. And so if it doesn't feel right, you know, you probably should say no.
0: Yeah. I like the, like you said, like if if it doesn't feel right, because if you end up in somebody that does have like an interview process that's set up in that way, they're probably not valuing their employees very much. They're kind of more of a come in the door, go out the door type of, of company where every other week it's some, some uh, new employee. I mean, this is probably more for like production level uh, where you see some companies where they're just. Um,
1: well, even, even, or even, production level, you know, one of the things that Michelin I'm, I'm really proud of that we used to talk about a lot was everybody we interviewed, uh, has the potential to buy our tires. And this may be the only interaction they have with our company. Mm. And so we need to assume that they're a customer and how we treat them. They're going to remember for the rest of their lives. And so we need to treat them with respect. We need to handle that very well because they will, even if they decide not to work for us or it's not a good, or it's not a good fit, they will tell their friends and family about their experience. Yeah, And so you have to have that sort of perspective when you're interviewing that this is, this is no different than if you're trying to sell someone your product.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's super valuable. I mean, I think a lot of times people don't put, put weight on the fact that like in that interview process, you're selling your company into the future, not just this one particular interview.
1: Absolutely. Um, And it is true. I mean, even, even today, um, you you'll talk to folks that didn't get hired or left mission they'll if, you've, if we've done a good job they'll speak very highly of of the company and that's what you want yeah not you know um one of the most difficult things when i was in recruiting was saying no to somebody and you know a no is not mean that the person is not talented valuable maybe even excellent a no means that that they're not a good fit for the role and it, it doesn't, you know, and and that's the 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 biggest disservice you could get, tell somebody is yes when it really should be no. Yeah, you know, again, because then you have the wrong job. Mm-hmm. So you know, no is not a bad thing. No is sometimes the right answer because it'll it it tells you to go look for something that's a better match for your skills and your talents, and and that's okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, for, like for me, like. You know, becoming a business owner, hiring was a part of the process that I was never really involved in. And so uh, I was generally the guy that got the new hires and then had to deal with whatever I, whatever I was given. Um, and so it's been a huge, huge learning curve, like the hiring process, um, you know, hiring, hiring for skills versus hiring for culture. Um, like that's our message today now is like, I don't want to hire anybody unless we absolutely need them right now, unless it's culture first. Um,
1: it's a a great point
0: Um, with us. I mean, especially I think for any company, it's important, but you know, for us, we have like very ambitious goals. We have, uh, very ambitious, like growth strategies and what we want to do is an impact to the world. And the only way that can really happen is by our culture, all being the same us all being in sync together. Um, you can have, we'll have a very successful business and not have the same type of culture that we anticipate having. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's definitely a big thing that I've found, and like even too, like within like the first year or two, I also lost sight of culture myself, right? I kind of like, you know, lost lost sight of the vision of why we're operating a company and, um, you know what we're really striving for, right? And and definitely this past year, I've been like back on my 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 culture, back on like our our goals and us striving towards them and and making sure they're they're publicly announced to the employees of the team. So that way we all have that.
1: Well, you you know, you asked me about the military and you asked me about the parallels with manufacturing, this idea of culture, the leaders have to set the culture and then they have to maintain the culture. Okay. And they have to insist upon it being maintained within the unit or within the, within the, the the plant or the company. Mm. And you're right. It's a very strong leadership role. Um, And sometimes we get so focused on some of the day-to-day things because it's really not a day-to-day thing. It's a, it's a long-term thing. It's a, it's a, it's sort of like every day you come to work and you have to say, what am I doing today to sustain my culture Uh, or to improve or to improve upon it? Okay. Yeah. And that's a leader's role. And it's a, it's hard when you, when you have this customer issue and that customer issue to keep that in, in the forefront of your mind, Mm -hmm. but it's an important element for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, like, Especially depending on the size of your company, you know, we're still a somewhat smaller company, um, but it can become easy to be distracted. Like I think of of the CEO of the company as like the, one of their primary jobs is culture, uh, but then also like we have the execution of work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And whereas we have a COO of the company, uh, and and you know he does a fantastic job there's still times where I I needed to be involved in that process. Right. And, and, and whenever you land three purchase orders in a, in a week, now you gotta, you gotta start, you know, aiming hard at the execution side of things and you can easily lose sight of, of your cultural side of things and other aspects. Absolutely. All right. Let me, let's go ahead and dive back in a little bit deeper to uh, kind of how your career started to, uh, change as you was in Michelin?
1: That's a great question. One of the things that, you know, there's a, I'm gonna, there's a really good book called, uh, by Goldsmith called what got you here. Won't get you there. Mm. And you know, my, I started as an industrial engineer and that's an individual contributor role. And I, you know, I, I'd, I'd manage people in the military. And so I, I had the opportunity then to become an industrial engineering manager you know three years into my career with michelin and what you realize very quickly is what you used to do as an individual contributor it changes dramatically and you become a manager and so you the skills that you had you know i used to you know as an industrial engineer executed projects and maintained standards on the shop floor and you know worked really closely with the operators and then as a manager you know, now my role was to help others learn, you know, do that well and to Mm -hmm. coach them on that. And occasionally, like you alluded to just in your own business, occasionally you got to, you get in, you know, you can't, you can't be aloof. You got to be willing to get your hands dirty and be in there working as well. But your primary role is now, um, developing others to do that work. Mm -hmm. And so over my career, um, I advanced from doing that work myself, obviously, then into managerial roles. From the industrial engineering manager where I had, um, you know, a dozen industrial engineers working for me, I then had the opportunity to move into a production role, production management. And in that case, then I had, I was leading individuals who actually had people working for them. So going from um, having the individual contributors work for you to having now managers of man- of people work for you is again another different sort of <laughs> approach that you got to be able to do because yeah. now you're coaching them on how to deal with people
0: hmm. and
1: so that evolution is a uh, is uh, is interesting and it requires different
0: skills at each level of the organization mm. yeah yeah i think they're 100% completely different uh, skill sets one thing that i noticed is that through my career i kind of organically became a manager you know, it was, I was the PLC programmer. And then, you know, at one point in time I was a PLC programmer, the robot programmer and all these other job titles. And then, okay, we hired somebody who was, you know, the robot program. We hired somebody who was the, uh, you know, electrical engineer. And as those people got hired into the company, they kind of ended up being my junior, right? They were just, I guided them on whatever, whatever was needed in the project. And, uh so my entire career because i spent 10 years or, or sorry i spent uh i think eight years at that one company right and uh this episode of the manufacturing come up is sponsored by elite automation elite automation is focusing on amr technologies amrs are autonomous mobile robots used in your facility to transfer goods or products from one side of your facility to the other This is a super powerful tool and it's a new piece of technology that us as systems integrators can utilize as a tool to leverage your company, to be more advanced than the next company and be able to automate systems that at one point were not able to be automated. If you have any AMR needs, you can reach us at RFQ at eliteautomationusa.com. So I didn't have a bunch of experiences outside of that. And, and as people were getting hired into that, that, that company and as they were becoming um juniors to me i basically had to you know learn these management roles but they were easy to learn at that point in time because it was just kind of okay we got another new guy right just train him up right. to do his job make sure that the project gets executed on time and all that was very organic but then when it came to like starting a company i'm hiring engineers that have 10 years of experience they're not necessarily a junior anymore some of these guys were right. way than I am on the control side of things right we're just really all different types of things right um yeah. and uh so now I'm like managing individuals that are having much higher skill sets and uh and it's also different too because it wasn't like we just hired one guy who who, who is now underneath me in management but we're hiring two three four five people and now I have to deal with uh you know, the way I go about managing each one of these individuals.
1: Well, in you're what you remind me of when you talk about that and the evolution, you know what, when I was a early in one's career as a manager, I remember thinking, okay, the golden rule, right? Do you want others as they would like, as you would like done to you, right? So that's a really, that creates a level of respect and thinking mm-hmm. about how you want things done, but really in today's world, you know, when I talk to business leaders, um, I used I talked about the platinum rule. And the platinum rule is do unto others as they want done to them. And when you talk about your example of now you've got four or five engineers, and you got to treat them as individuals. What it says is what's important to one of them might not be important to the other. Mm. And of course, this is really the challenge we have today. Well, we've always had this challenge in in any organization. Is that people expect internal equity, like, Hey, why, is, you know, I want to be treated the same as Joe. If Joe gets this, why can't I, mm-hmm. but they also want to be recognized as an individual, right? Hey, I've got this particular need, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it's unique to me and, you know, do you acknowledge that? And can you help me have that, you know, achieve that. And so you've got really both those things that play with each other that you have to manage as a leader in the environment. It's not so easy sometimes to do that. Yeah but if you don't keep in mind the the platinum rule um people believe because if they don't feel like they're being addressed as an individual especially in a in an employee market which is what we're 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 still experiencing yeah hey, they'll go find a place that will 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 recognize and take care of them individually as well
0: yeah absolutely what do, what do you have what i guess what is one of your strategies to um extract like individual needs
1: it's 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 pretty simple ask them <laughs> right it sounds crazy
0: yeah. but you know
1: sometimes we the the you got to be ready for what you're going to hear okay because you don't know what you're going to hear <laughs> and it, and it may surprise you sometimes because you know we have our own experiences right yeah. um but you have to ask people and you have to listen um and you have to you have to really know your folks and if you do mm-hmm. that, and I say ask them, but you have to listen and, and get to know them. And um, you don't need to, to f- discover everything, but you've got to have the kind of rapport where they know that if they've got something they need or they, they can come to you and you're mm-hmm. going to listen. You know, one of the things that, that, uh, I often we talk with managers about today is how do you manage your time? So, you know, we talk about an open door policy, right? But most of us have more than enough to do as it is and can't afford uh, uh all these interruptions and so being able to to create the right boundaries where you're accessible but at the same time you're able to manage your time so one of the things we often share with folks is hey if if you know i would work with my door open and i would always recommend that for somebody unless you're in a in a, in a call and disturbing the workplace but mm-hmm. that way people can knock on your door and then they'll say, hey, you got a minute, right? And then right. the response is key. Look, if it's urgent, I do. I always have a minute for you if it's urgent. But if it's not, I'm in the middle of a project right now. Would you mind scheduling a time on my calendar?
0: Mm.
1: And so making sure people know they can come to you if it's urgent, but also saying to them, look, if it's not urgent, could we schedule a time later? And That would give me time to finish the project that's, that I've got to get done. And so there's finding that that language and that way to do that in such a way that um, people feel comfortable that they can bring their their needs to you, like we were talking about before, yeah. Um, and their issues, without it becoming intrusive, and mm-hmm. uh, on your
0: time. Yeah, I really like the the open door policy. That's kind of that's one of the things that I bring up to our employees. It's like they 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 still do this. They'll ask me, say, "Hey, do you have time to talk about this or whatever?" I, and I just tell them, "Hey, just look at my calendar. If there's an opening there, book it. You know, I'll be there." Um, and I'll continue to do that until I can't, you know, right. pretty much, pretty much everything I do.
1: No, that's really important. But anyway, that's, a, I guess that that's the thing is when you talk, how do you get those individual needs? It's really by asking them and then creating an environment where people are comfortable coming to you with them. You know, yeah. if the first time somebody says something to you, you shut them down, they're not coming back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're not coming back
0: what are your thoughts on management style as far as like, Oh, like having a harder management versus like a, a kinder management system and, and people in place.
1: Well, I'm not sure. Um, I, I, let me just, let me take your question and flip it a little bit if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I'm not sure kinder and softer is kind of how I would compare contrast management style there. Sure. I think, um, there are some principles I, I would say that you have to create, we'll go back to culture for a moment. Okay. And there's some things that I always tell folks that you want to sort of reinforce and, and create. And so I think it's about more like situational leadership where sometimes it, you need to be firm
0: mm-hmm. and
1: sometimes you, you can be soft. And so let me talk about those points for a moment. So the first thing I think you have to do is create a, a culture that's focused on the client and your customer. All right. And then secondly, that, that in, involves your people. So those are two key things. And then I'm a, uh, I've got a strong lean background. So I like, uh, as we talked about earlier, respect for standards mm-hmm. is key. Um, and um, eliminating waste. Mm-hmm. And then finally visual management. And so the questions I would ask in an environment would be along those lines to sustain and create that sort of culture when it comes to respect for standards, for example, sometimes if it's safety, you know, it's there's it's it's a hard it's a hard yeah. leadership style. It's like, you know, my, you know, we're, you're not it. going. Here's how we go. Here's how we're going to do it. This isn't a conversation, okay? Yeah. And and in some cases, you know, if in a lot of plant a lot of companies at Michelin anyway, we had we call cardinal safety rules. If you violated one of those cardinal safety rules, you you most likely would be fired. OK, mm. why? Because those cardinal safety rules, if you violate them, can cause death or serious injury. Yeah. And our role as leaders is to make sure people go home whole, OK, the way they mm. came to work in the morning. And so that's a pretty hard leadership style. If you you know, that's that's a, yep. that's a line in the sand. OK,
0: yep.
1: on the flip side, um, there are some other sorts of standards where you want respect for standards, but they aren't nearly as they're more. You can use them more, more as coaching, arts, points. Yeah. coaching yeah. points, not yeah. a hard line. And so I think it's a bit situational, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Um, there aren't very many times when, if you were to kind of put a scale out and weigh them, the the hard leadership style, you know, safety is a clear one. There aren't too many like that. There's your values and yeah, their culture can be maybe a little bit more strong. Mm-hmm. Ethics, you know, how you treat each other. But for the most part, coaching is the the soft style. The coaching and the the asking questions to have people learn, learn by reflection and thinking is the way to go. If you at the same time though, you know most companies have a disciplinary process, and you you know you need to have some approach to that to when folks aren't able to learn or aren't willing to learn, where it escalates um, because at some point. Your, the other workers expect you to be able to hold, each, help each other, uh, help hold each other accountable for certain standards, mm-hmm. and so it can get progressively harder, um, depending upon the the progression of that and the ability to either pick it up or not. Your yeah. your workforce expects that from you ultimately as well, for you mm-hmm. to 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 raise the expectations and help people hold themselves accountable for the things that they're supposed to do
0: yeah yeah i think i think all these points are very valuable for uh you know somebody in like the management type of position or looking to get into management um i've definitely and I am in a whole new level of management <laughs> and um one of the harder harder things for me to manage is the the non-executable items that need to be like disciplined. So like when there's a cultural issue versus like an execution issue, that's, that's kind of one of the so, hardest things. Go ahead. Yeah. Give me an
1: example of what you mean by that.
0: Let's say for instance, uh, you have a list of work that needs to be get gotten done. Right. The list, all the list is all getting done. Right. But maybe there's like communicational issues or maybe Maybe you can even say like, maybe coming into work late or, you know, some, some more like behavioral things, but all the execution and the work is kind of getting done.
1: Right. So, um, yeah, I'll give you, so let's take the coming into work late, but you're still getting your job done. I think you have to decide what your standards are in your workplace. So, you know, in, for example, in today's world, especially post COVID now, a lot of folks, um, expect a lot more flexibility with their work schedule and even whether or not if their job allows without even having to be present. Of course, in manufacturing, that's a bit hard if you're running a piece of equipment, right? But Mm -hmm. as an engineer, sometimes you can have more flexibility. Um, And so the question of being tardy uh, versus being objective-based, I think we've evolved in our workplace. We've got to ask ourselves, why is it necessary for me to have firm work time? Is there a business reason for that, aka the machine's got to run? Well, yep. if that's the case, then I can justify that, and I have a standard, and I can enforce it. But if there's not a reason for that, why do I have the rule? Yep. Okay. And it, and I think we're challenging a lot of those those uh, things that previously we didn't challenge. And you know, it goes back to the why. Is the why clearly related to the business need? Mm-hmm. If it is, it's easy going it to be easy to explain to the business result, easy to explain and, and relatively easy to enforce. Mm. Okay. But if it, if, and if, if people are struggling with that and you see a lot of variation there, then I, I go back and ask the question, have you explained why it's important to your business Yep. or is it still needed for your business? Cause mm. those are usually signs that one of those two things isn't, isn't still relevant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good point because one thing I noticed about myself in my own natures is that when it comes to management, it's the things that I can explain that are the easiest things for me to manage. Right. Whenever I have a hey, this is causing an issue with this, it's easy to it's easy to manage it versus like, you know, like I think sometimes in management you could 101% I was I was 101% this individual where I would get very frustrated if somebody's like not doing this thing that they're supposed to do. And I'd be angry internally and you know, what I noticed as I like, like I grew is that mentioning the thing and mentioning kind of like why the thing is disruptive, right. Is made it so much easier for me to, to be able to manage things.
1: Well, and sometimes the best thing to do when you feel that frustration, you know, a lot of times people want you, like you said, you want to, you want to tell someone why they need to be doing it. Sometimes the best way to answer to deal with that is to ask them. So you, you know, the, we have this practice of, or this the standard that this is expected to be done. Why is it you're struggling with that? Hmm. Because they may either not understand it or they may not be able to explain the why themselves. It may be clear to you, but not to them. It goes back to that platinum rule again. Yeah. It's listening, it's asking them the question and listening to their answer. Because oftentimes I've discovered in my career that um, my anger was misplaced. In other words, it, they just didn't get, they didn't understand the per, the procedure or even that the standard couldn't be followed, right? Mm. So I think there's a lot of time. You've got to take a moment, pause and ask questions. And if you'll do that, I think you're going to discover the root cause of why they're not following the standard. Mm. And that will allow you to better take a more precise action with them to to resolve that issue.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Tell us some valuable points to think on. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's, well, and by the way, um, it's always easier to talk about it than it is to do it. Okay. Just for the record. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always the delicate uh, kind of part of the conversation as a coach. You know, I can sit down and we can talk to somebody, but then taking the action when you have another person in front of you and finding the words that are comfortable for you and that they're going to respond yeah. to. Sometimes that takes a little bit of practice. So yeah, it is, easier to talk about it. Sometimes than it is to do it for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things to point out, like how I was saying, like whenever I can explain something to somebody or, or talk about the why with somebody, it makes that management so much easier, right? That's that trigger that takes it from extremely difficult to much easier, maybe even simple, right? Just a normal conversation now. Right. And also mm-hmm. to kind of touch on that, like, I think it's super important the how difficult it can be to manage these things and, and that talking about them is much easier. Because whenever you say, ah, oh, whatever, they're not doing their job, just fire them. is way different than, hey, sorry, but we have to let you go. You know what I mean? That conversation is a lot harder and completely different.
1: Well, and and when you're a, a manager of managers, in other words, um, when you're managing folks that have people working for them, you have to recognize that each individual has their own different behavioral style. So, so there are some folks that don't like conflict, for example. Yeah. And we'll do things to avoid conflict. And so you might have a supervisor who's really good at a lot of things, but not, might not be comfortable confronting people. Mm. Okay, and that's you know, and so you have to help them learn how to conf- how to have that conversation within their behavioral style. Mm. And again, why is that conversation important? You know, let's let's figure out how to, how you can have that in a way where where you can manage your discomfort with conflict. So, Mm -hmm. you know, recognizing that uh, not everybody uh, ticks the same way, so to speak, behaves the same way is an important, that's also an important element to being a good, uh, a good leader.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, part of what I mentioned about the, you know, hard management versus the soft management, I'm very much more on like the softer side of things. I don't necessarily avoid conflict, but I, I hate having the hard conversations if they're not worded in a way where uh it is conversational um or 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 pointing out some type of statistic um
1: well and you know on, ironically ironically if you ask people and i think i would ask you the same question most folks like the straight answer right mm. and so while you may be hesitant to create conflict sometimes that's actually the, the last thing the person wants is for you to avoid talking to them about the situation I, you know, most folks would much rather hear that they aren't doing it right so they can fix it. You know, no one comes to work in the morning, not no one, almost no one goes to work in the morning thinking I'm going to mess up today or I want to mess up today. Right. And so one of the leadership styles that we want to talk through is how can I be direct with people? How can I tell them what they need to hear? Um, and do it in a way that they'll receive the information and then be able to act and process it. Okay. So that's, that's a key, that's a key skill. But if you think about it, most folks appreciate, normally appreciate that uh, that feedback because that way they can get better because they want to succeed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. To dive back a little bit more into your career, uh, what, made you transition from more of the engineering role to, to the HR role?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I guess if I think all the way back, um, when I was at West Point, during the time I was there, we didn't have majors. We just had it. We all were like a bachelor of science and engineering degree, but we could take certain electives. Um, and I took most of my electives in psychology. Mm. So I've always enjoyed the people side of things. You know, I chose to work in the infantry, not because I enjoyed carrying a rifle, but because it was about people. Um, and so I've, I've always sort of had that bias towards uh, the people side of the business. And so, um, you know, prior to taking on the, the actual recruiting role, even in manufacturing, I was involved with the deployment of our best practices, manufacturing best practices with a focus on helping people learn how to do them. And so it was kind of a training and development role, but from the manufacturing side. So for me, that's always been uh, a passion of mine, something I've enjoyed doing. And, you know, that's led to me being a coach now as well. (laughs) So it's just, just, I think it's been something I've always liked and enjoyed doing. And at the end of the day, and you know, this manufacturing is people business. You know, it certainly there's equipment, it's running, but at least uh, until we get to a lights out factory, it's, it's about the people. yeah, and, and and so that's always been a key part of it and something I've really enjoyed. And, you know, and, and, uh, so that's why I pursued moving into HR.
0: Gotcha. So was it a pretty deliberate decision to, to shift or was, uh, or did things kind of just align for you to go that direction?
1: So I'm going to say yes. And what I mean by that, so, you know, the way you get a role with a company is is kind of three things have to line up one you've got to be interested in something two uh there has to be a need and and then three you got to say yes you know so i i'd always had a sort of my my eye on um uh, certain hr activities and you know depending on where i was in my career in terms of the current job and whether we usually stayed in our roles three to five years. So the timing, and then secondly, um, there was an opening that matched my skills and then we made the match. So mm-hmm. um, that's how that sort of happened. So it was kind of both. It was both the need the company had for, for what I could offer for that role and my interest in that role.
0: Gotcha. What was the actual title of that position?
1: Yeah. So I, I my first, um, so as I mentioned in and we are kind of talk about years now. In two thousand and five, I had the opportunity to move in this training and development role, working in mm-hmm. in an, uh, helping to deploy our manufacturing best practices. Mm-hmm. And you know that was more of a training and development role
0: that
1: mm-hmm. um, took advantage of my experience in manufacturing and my interest in in training and development people and brought them together. My following that role, I, that's when I became the director of corporate recruiting. And what was a good match there for me is recruiting is very much an operational activity. Okay. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I, I took on that role in 2010. And if you remember in 2008, we had a big downturn in the economy Mm -hmm. and the company was still coming back from the time we had a lot of requisitions to fill and we had to be very operationally focused. Mm -hmm. And so I, even though I had an HR experience, now my operational background combined that together made me a good match for the recruiting role. Um, And then as I matured in in HR, I retired from, I was the competency manager for the progress profession. And in that role, um, I was responsible for the training and development of the industrial engineers and progress engineers Hmm. and helped me to train the line managers and how to support them and and also lead continuous improvement. Hmm. I had responsibility for the job design for the progress engineers, industrial engineers, so they would stay with the company, enjoy their work. And finally that we were contributing the world to the results of the business. So most of my HR roles were a strong combination of both business and, and people. Gotcha. And, okay. and that's really what I enjoyed both is that, that combination. And that's why I like doing what I do now as, as a business coach and executive coach, is it really combines both elements. Again, the people side and the business side.
0: Yeah. I'm, kind of a good point to segue um your transition from from the nine to five job to to business consulting what what made you make that transition
1: well you know i'm gonna i'm gonna pick at your word for a moment because it's coaching not consulting okay
0: oh sorry sorry my bad no and there's a difference
1: <laughs> the difference is as there's a, coach, a difference, Yeah, i want to ask the questions and help the person develop the competence to manage the, the their own situations okay mm-hmm. and, and oftentimes a consultant will bring a solution and then um, you know, move on to the next problem. Yeah. Um, no, I just found in my career, you know, Michelin was great. 35 years. Um, I didn't have to retire. Um, but I reached the point in my career where I wanted a little more flexibility in what I was able to do. I've got three grandchildren now I want to be able to spend time with them. Um, and so, and I can do this as long as I want, as much as I want. Right. And it just made a lot of sense that I could take the experience I had, what I learned, and, and, uh, and now enjoy that and work for myself instead of for a big company and help yeah. others. You know, today, one of the things I like to do is work with uh, younger professionals who are not sure about their career and help them uh, think about where they're going and develop their own plans. Mm-hmm. The, and the thing about that that I enjoy most, you know, a lot of times they'll say, they'll ask me, uh, and, and be, I'm in a great position to be able to do this, How, what do I owe you? And for me, the answer is, you don't owe me anything 20 years from now, when you're successful, pay mm-hmm. it forward, help someone else. And I think that's something we can do. And I really, for, I'm fortunate because I've retired and have, have retirement and have.
0: This episode of the Manufacturing Come Up is sponsored by Elite Automation. Elite Automation is a systems integrator specializing in robotic weld cell applications and especially the design and manufacturing of the weld fixture. If you have any robotic weld cell needs, you can reach us at RFQ at EliteAutomationUSA.com. Uh,
1: you know, the the capability military, yeah. yeah, coaching so that I can yeah. help others. Uh, one of the side things I also enjoy doing is helping uh, those folks who are transitioning from the military to civilian life in the same way. Mm.
0: So gotcha, these are sorry. some of,
1: yeah important things for me.
0: Are you are you kind of doing some of those things as just like a give back or the those like people you're taking on as clients? Yeah,
1: as as a give back. Gotcha. And or clients, you know, it, it's uh it really mostly for, depending upon the, the person's um situation, give back. Mm-hmm. And then you know, for others it's a client depending upon where they are in terms of their you know, their business or if they are in a business already.
0: Gotcha. A lot of those individuals on the give back side of things, are, are they entrepreneurs or are they somebody just looking into getting into a career?
1: Uh, it kind of depends where I've met them, okay? Normally, gotcha. a lot of times they're entrepreneurs who are looking for, uh, you know, it's harder on the entrepreneur side because it it's not where my expertise lies. You know, I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, I worked in a large company, so I'm better off working with folks who already are as business leaders in an established business. Mm, yeah. So, I'm usually dealing with folks either who are of an established business, of which they normally are paid clients at that point. Yeah. Or um, individuals who are, aren't are sure about their career. And with my recruiting experience, I'm able to help them. And that, that's oftentimes pro bono. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, especially for those who are um, maybe earlier in their career, that. You know, because at some level, right, You, if you're going to get a coach, you make that decision to, to get a coach. But I think a lot of people may ask themselves, like, when is the right time for me to get a coach?
1: Good question. So I'm on a routine. So if we talk about coaching, I think the best analogy is this. So whether I'm a let's let's talk about sports for a moment, if you play golf or tennis or. Any sport, I mean, through your entire sporting life, you have coaches, right? Mm-hmm. And whether you're just starting out as a novice, you need a coach, or whether you are uh, at the top of your game, an Olympic athlete, you have a coach, right? And so, I think the answer to the question is, anytime is the right time to have a coach, honestly, because you can always, you know, why why a coach? There are things you don't always see in yourself. Mm-hmm. There are there are perspectives you're looking for there, there are skills you're trying to develop where you can't do that on your own. So having somebody else to help you can bring you very, very valuable to you. So it, it really, anytime is the right time to be honest with you, depending upon what your goals are. Yeah. You know, I typically, as an executive coach, if I'm working with somebody in an organization. It's usually one of two scenarios, either they're struggling with their team and they're, they're not getting the best performance from their team and they need to accelerate that performance. Or they're doing quite well there and are preparing for the next role. Mm. So it's usually one of those two scenarios where it's from a personal coaching perspective. And if it's from a business coaching perspective, you know, it's about um, improving your profitability. Usually um, a business leader has a challenge in one of four areas if they need a coach. One is time. Um, And I'm working eight hours a week and. I can't get to Johnny's soccer game or I can't get to my, my wife was wondering when we're going to go out on a date, you know? So time, you can't make more time. You have to use your time more effectively team. Uh, you know, I, I know my team is competent, but we're not getting good results or, um, you know, I hired Steve two years ago and I know he's got the competences, but we don't get along, you know? So team, um, money, You know, I've been working hard for two years and our revenue's not grown or I never seem to have enough cash to get through the month. And then finally, strategy or future. You know, a lot of small business owners and mid-sized business owners are so focused on today that they don't think about three or five years from now or beyond. And so putting together strategies, going back to our conversation around starting with the why, purpose, values, vision, mission, strategy, having that put in place so that you can Actually, drive the, the future of your business better than reacting to it. So usually, a, a business leader is going to have a coach and working with them in one of those four areas.
0: Gotcha. Do you have a particular uh, type of client that you or a particular particular thing that you like to coach?
1: Well, I, I prefer you know my my expertise is in manufacturing, so I look for manufacturers, and I actually work today with many software providers who who support manufacturers as well. So those are my those are really my ideal clients
0: gotcha and is there any any particular aspect within the business that's that's kind of your favorite or
1: no really as a as a focal point coach really there's no, there's i'm able to work with all aspects of the business so um, gotcha that's one of the strengths of the focal point uh brand
0: gotcha awesome awesome do you have any uh last valuable points that you'd like to add back to the community
1: well I think the I want to talk about manufacturing just for a moment. You know, we've talked sure. about leading and that kind of thing, but manufacturing is a wonderful career. Um, I, I've enj- I enjoyed my time in manufacturing tremendously. As we move into the future, we need to, to continue to develop our manufacturing environments to make them attractive, so that we attract great talent. Um, and really, you know, manufacturing is the heartbeat, I believe, of our economy. And so we we've got to continue to to grow it, refine it, and, and make it strong for the future. So, if you're wondering, should I go into manufacturing? I would say yes. It's been a, it's a you'll learn a lot. You, a lot of things we talked about today will be should be part of your environment. Yep. Um, and and then secondly, as leaders in manufacturing, if you're listening, um, make sure you're creating the right cultures and environment to attract those folks to your to your workplace.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I obviously believe that manufacturing is a great career. Um, I lean slightly, slightly towards the automation, robotics side of things, but uh, I think manufacturing as a whole is just—it opens up so many opportunities that that so many people didn't even think about as a career path, and it's just been so fruitful to people. Um, yeah, there's so many good jobs in the in this this career field of manufacturing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I'm with you on that one. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for being with us today, Mike. Uh, is there any particular area? I know you mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Where can people find you at again?
1: Yeah. So if you're if you're a shared to the Industry 4.0 Club, me personally, please check me out on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find me. Um, uh, and uh, if you'd like to talk more about coaching, you know, please uh, please reach out. I'm happy to. to to spend a little bit of time seeing if it's an opportunity for us to work together or, you know, I don't mind spending 30 minutes getting to know you and and, and broadening my network as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks, Malachi.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a great uh, conversation.
0: Oh, yeah, it's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.
1: Take care.